with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about oil prices jump after the OPEC Plus nations announcing additional production cuts, and also China and Brazil will use their own currencies for bilateral trade. Are we seeing a trend of de-dollarization? And now let's begin with our top story. Oil prices jumped after OPEC Plus producers announced further cuts of their output. Saudi Arabia and other OPEC Plus nations announced production cuts of nearly 1.2 million barrels per day. And Reuters estimates that the total volume of cuts by OPEC Plus equal to 3.7 percent of global demand. So why are OPEC Plus nations announcing additional cuts right now? How will it affect the oil prices? On the global market. For more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Aina, first,、uh, why do Saudi Arabia and other OPEC Plus oil producers want to further cut the oil outputs at this moment? And is it a surprise to you? No, it's it's not surprising at all. It, it might be a surprise to Washington, who would ask them to in, actually increase the、uh, amount of oil they're putting out to lower the price.、Uh, but you know, OPEC Plus is signaling quite clearly that they want to keep the price of oil around eighty dollars、uh, per barrel, and、uh, that's exactly what they did. I mean, there was some softness.、Uh, the price had、uh, wandered down towards seventy. And by doing this,、uh, the price was raised up.、Um, you know, depending on whether you're talking about、uh, West Texas or uh, or Brent,、uh, it's now you know there's a five dollar differential, but、uh, Brent's around eighty five, West Texas around eighty. Mm. And so then, the volume of their、uh, oil cuts actually equal to 3.7 percent of the global demand. And so, what's the market response to it? And we've seen the oil prices jump quite a bit at first. The response, and will this continue? Um, traders around the world were already quite bullish on the oil's prospects because、uh, we all have this consensus that in the second half of the year, China's economy will perform much stronger than the first half. With this reopening, and the rest of the rest,、uh, East, Southeast Asia will also step up、uh, their growth. So the OPEC、uh, plus might hope for higher prices、uh, in this background, because a lot of the hedge funds has sold out oil during the bank turmoil、uh, mm. last month. And the risky assets,、uh, including commodities, got、uh, sold off quite quickly. So they would want to reduce the volatility in the future, and they want to take some preventive steps, and this is one of them. Mm. And then, so the major oil producers' voluntary cuts start from May and last until the end of this year. Saudi Arabia, Russia, UAE, Kuwait, Iraq, and they all said they would cut the output over this period of time. So, what does it tell us?、Uh, all those top oil producers are worried that there might be a deeper recession than market had anticipated. Um, because、uh, the bank crisis doesn't look like it has come to an end yet.、Um, if the crisis does happen and expand, then in the coming few months to one to two years, the demand and supply could 
both decline. Um, boosting the prices of oil um, should happen before that uh, in order to help producers to shield uh, from that gloomy future. And mm. there is still this vivid memory of what happened in 2008 financial crisis um, because the oil prices plunged quite quickly uh, when the crisis happened. But the OPEC was too slow to respond. It was unable to prevent further decline of the oil price. And extreme price volatility of this kind hurt all of them quite badly. And this time, they definitely want to take the preventive move uh, for such a similar, uh, just to prevent such a similar situation. Mm -hmm. So, Aina, so do you agree with Dan on that? Or do you think the global banking crisis will lead to recession for the world economy? Or to what extent will it hit the oil demand? Well, uh, Dannon uh, didn't rule out that there was going to be a severe recession. He's uh, talking about the fears of these uh, different entities. I mean, right now, the, the economic situation worldwide is is not under control. You uh, see the U.S. is uh, you know, embroiled in its own domestic issues. Uh, it has $31.5 trillion and they haven't raised the debt ceiling. That adds a lot of uncertainty. Uh, into things going forward. You still have these toxic assets, uh, long-term treasuries that everyone thought would be safe. Uh, and, and, you know, around the world, they're having to deal with that. And not just around the world, but also domestically. So there are real concerns going on that the world is uh, basically leaderless, except for uh, the things that China is doing. And that, uh, you know, Europe can't really help out. And the U.S. is, as I said, preoccupied. Mm -hmm. And I know so Saudi Arabia this time announced the biggest cut among the OPEC members at uh, 500,000 barrels per day. And this cuts are in addition to a reduction announced last October. So why is this decision by Saudi Arabia? What is uh, Saudi Arabia's strategy? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that are working here, and, mm. and one of them is uh, this issue about keeping the price of oil uh, at around $80. Uh, remember, if you if you go back and you examine the Saudi um, you know, finances, the government finances, they depend very heavily on oil, and they need to be somewhere between $72 and $76 a barrel in order them, uh, to support all of the kind of initiatives that they uh, have. So uh, they, they have a, a very visceral interest. Mm. And then so the U.S. has argued that the world needs the lower prices to support the economic growth. And the Biden administration said it sees the move announced by the oil producers as uh, unwise. So what do you make of the U.S. stance? Why did they say so? And the U.S., of course, will try everything they can to ask the top producers to pump up more oil uh, in the global market in order to drag down prices, because inflation is still the number one concern in the U.S. and also in Europe. The production cut announcement had an immediate impact on gasoline futures uh, right after uh, the Saudi Arabia made the statement. And it could pass on to the U.S. drivers uh, quite quickly. And mm. that will not look good for the coming elections. And we can see that the rising prices, um, it's pretty high, but still nowhere near the record levels in 2022. So the U.S., it, is not necessarily in a disadvantaged position in preventing further volatility or rising prices in the oil market. It is just that they still want to exert more pressure on Saudi 
uh, in order to have less pressure for its domestic macroeconomic policies. Mm. And so now, what do you think will the high gasoline prices mean for the U.S. economy, especially when it is now facing the persistent high inflation issue and the Federal Reserve is really in a dilemma between, you know, hiking the rate again and the difficult situation of the banking system caused by it? Uh, one thing the Federal Reserve is trying to prevent is to have a higher inflation expectations because the actual inflation pressure is going down. But if the general public has their expectation up, then it will be a lot more difficult for the Fed to adopt a uh, lesser aggressive uh, monetary expansion. And it can be amplified by the panic in the banking system. Uh, we have already seen that the Federal Reserve is in this awkward position about how much to hike the rates and how long they should keep the interest rate high. Uh, one thing is clear, though, they do not want to uh, reverse their monetary stance too quickly because that only would show that they're clueless about a situation and probably the risk in the banking system is higher than what people had thought. Um, but they don't want to drag the high rates for too long either. Since now people are already getting more conservative, banks are getting more conservative, it automatically put a damper on the economy uh, already. And that means a recession might come earlier than what people had hoped for as well. Mm. And then, so what do you think about the Saudi Arabia's announcement of the biggest cut among the OPEC members? What's their strategy? The strategy is to form this tight alliance uh, in order to keep uh, the oil price relatively high. And that is clearly, from the Saudi Arabia standpoint, is a Saudi-first strategy. And quite understandably, they have a better relationship with a lot of other countries, including China. And they would need a stable fiscal revenue. And oil market is still one of the most important things they have to defend. Uh, we have seen in the past few years, they have also adopted new strategies to transform their energy composition. They also want to go green. But to establish that kind of infrastructure and institutional change is quite difficult. It's long term. During this economic recession, one thing they could control is how much oil they can produce. Uh, I don't think they would let that opportunity go as easily. Uh, mm. since that's their real leverage uh, when it comes to negotiations with the U.S. Mm. And so, Aina, so for the oil producer's surprise cut, uh, Goldman Sachs has raised its uh, price forecast for the uh, Brent futures after it, and uh, they raised it to $95 a barrel uh, December this year and $100 US dollar per barrel uh, December next year. So do you think the world economy can really sustain its growth on such a high oil price? Well, I think Goldman is working off a, a set of assumptions that, you know, basically saying that <clears throat> Saudi Arabia won't change. But I, I would disagree. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, very aware that a general um, depression or recession global 
uh, would hurt its business as well. So I, I think what they're signaling here is that they're going to keep the price around 80. So if prices start to edge up, they can always uh, meet and uh, start uh, uh, the process of adding more um, uh, crude to the to the mix. So they, they're in a driver's seat right now. Um, and I, I think they're really trying hard to make sure that they, they have what they need to run their economies, but also they don't want to kill the economy. And they're, they're a little bit more uh, active and prescient than uh, perhaps the U.S. Federal Reserve, which seems myopic in its attempt to only address inflation, regardless of how it hurts uh, domestically and uh, internationally. So, Dan, what do you think? Do you think the world economy can really sustain its growth on such high oil price? Um, for the U.S., uh, even the European economy, it's uh, not a big problem. And their fundamentals are still strong uh, because their economies both depend on services sector and consumption. Um, but for the broader parts in Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, the higher oil prices, especially the higher diesel prices, is affecting them quite badly. Um, because for those countries, they also have rising food uh, and natural gas prices. Those parts of the world could slide into a deep recession quite quickly. At this point, it doesn't look like they are under much stress yet, um, but things can uh, get into this downward spiral if uh, it's coupled with a banking crisis. Mm, so what do you expect for the oil prices December this year and December next year, Dan? Uh, I expect the oil price to stay high as the supply is going down and Saudi Arabia is quite determined that it won't bow to the U.S. this time. Um, the Chinese inflation is going to go up a bit as well with its better economic performance in the second half of the year. So the inflation pressure in the world is not down yet. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at the trend of de-dollarization. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China and Brazil will use their own currencies for bilateral trade, ditching the U.S. dollar as an intermediary. The move aims to promote trade and facilitate investment. The Chinese currency has surpassed the euro to become Brazil's second-largest international reserve currency. Meanwhile, other economies are also taking actions to seek the trade settlement in non-U.S. dollar currencies. So then, first of all, China and Brazil have decided to do their transactions in yuan directly in trading without the need to go through the U.S. dollar. So what does it mean and how does it work? Uh, it means a diversification of settlement currency. Um, for Brazil, it is a big plus because China is, is its largest trading partner uh, with this one additional channel to settle in RMB rather than in dollar gives Brazil the flexibility of reducing the transaction cost. 
And for China as well, uh, if more countries are adopting yuan to settle the trade finances, then it's going to increase the status of yuan internationally. Mm. So, Ina, the Brazilian Trade and Investment Promotion Agency said this new arrangement is expected to reduce the cost and promote even greater bilateral trade and facilitate investment. So, how exactly will this uh, arrangement be implemented? Do you think? Well, uh, currently, there's about 150 billion dollars worth of two-way trade,、um, and to the extent that you can lessen your risk, e.g., you don't have to pay attention to the volatility of the U.S. dollar, especially given the banking crisis and things like that,、mm-hmm. and that you have direct settlements,、uh, yes, you can cut costs. Now, in order to do that, there'll have to be a clearinghouse. But you know, I would、uh, reemphasize something that Dan said: this is another channel. There is no, you know, requirement. Uh, that you settle that, but businesses will be looking at the costs and the volatility, the risk that they're taking on the currency, which is not their core business. You know, their core business is is selling generally commodities or buying electronics. They don't want to add more risk factors, and especially during a time when things are so uncertain. So I think it's a very very attractive option.、Uh, as I said, there has to be a clearinghouse that is set up mutually by、uh, Beijing and uh, and uh, Brazil, and、uh, that will be the key to. Understanding exactly, you know, what the costs of these uh, direct uh, uh, currency transactions will be.、Mm. So then, as you mentioned, China is Brazil's biggest trading partner. So, what are the main imports and exports items between the two countries, and how will this new arrangement benefit the trade, make the trade more easy? Well,、uh, uh, the trade structure is very different for the two countries.、Uh, what China has been importing from Brazil are mostly commodities, including agricultural goods like soybeans、uh, and also、uh, metals like iron ore.、Um, when it comes to、uh, other goods,、um, there's very little trade that actually China can import from Brazil. Um, but the stuff that Brazil import from China are mostly industrial inputs、uh, and industrial goods like telecommunication equipment, electronics, machinery, and those things are quite essential for the their domestic manufacturing industry. So they're quite dependent on China、uh, about that. And now there's this new channel of settled international trade and. We have seen in the past few years trade deficit between China and Brazil is increasing because there's a higher demand for China to import more commodities from Brazil. So there is extra RMB held on the Brazilians' hands, and it has become easier for them to actually just adopt the yuan to settle a lot of the trade. Mm. And so, Ina, so Brazil is not the only country using the RMB for trade with China, right? So, for instance, other countries like、uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia have also made similar arrangements. So, are we seeing the acceleration of the trend of deviating from one single dominant global currency to diversifying by countries and companies? Yes, absolutely. And、uh, right now, there are 25 countries which have、uh, these kind of swap agreements、uh, that allow uh, direct uh, currency trades. Now, China has primary trade relations with 150、uh, countries. It would just make more sense to deal directly、uh, in the currency to、uh, yuan than it does to go through a third party, especially、uh, for two reasons: one, the volatility because of the uncertain economic、uh, policies of the U.S.,、uh, particularly the Fed and the, the rate increases. And second,、uh, the the kind of political、uh, angle of this is the U.S. has weaponized 
on a number of occasions against anybody he doesn't like, whether it's Venezuela, Cuba, um, Russia, Iran, etc. Um, and countries just don't feel comfortable anymore relying on the U.S. dollar. So it's not going to go away, but it certainly will become a lesser player or uh, one among many of different uh, currencies. It's not going to be just yuan and uh, dollars. Uh, Europe is also vying. The Middle East is looking at their own uh, situation. Russia obviously is. Uh, if the BRICS expands uh, with another five members, uh, it really becomes the, the powerhouse of the emerging and developing countries. And at that juncture, if they start putting a common uh, basket of currencies or a uh, trade currency together, the U.S. would be forced to uh, basically uh, take second uh, position to that. Mm -hmm. So then are we seeing the acceleration of the trend of deviating from one single dominant global currency to diversifying by countries and companies? Well, should the U.S. be concerned that the dollar may be losing its dominance in the global economy? Uh, I don't think there is a real concern about dollar losing its dominance uh, because usually in this global financial system, there can only be one dominating currency as a reserve currency. Uh, usually, uh, the choice for a reserve currency would depend on how open that financial market is for the country. There cannot really be a capital control. And uh, the global financial market and central banks has to really trust the ability of that country's central bank to manage its macroeconomy. But now, both of those foundations have been weakened. Uh, we have seen how reliant the global uh, banking system depend on the Federal Reserve's move, and it had kept the interest rate artificially low for a very long time in order to prop up the domestic economy after COVID started. And then it had rein in the economy quite quickly by hiking the interest rate after the COVID was over. So it has caused this big volatility for almost every country around the world. And then when it comes to sanctions, uh, it has become such a widespread um, usage and show of power of the U.S. for the countries that it doesn't see eye to eye. And it doesn't just hurt uh, the countries of target like Russia, but also other countries uh, and areas that want to do business as usual, including its allies uh, like the EU. So it is only natural for every other country to diversify their reserve currency and means of doing business uh, in this highly volatile world. Mm. So Aina, are we moving to a world of currency multipolarity? Actually, trading nations around the world are looking for lower risk, more cost-effective, cheaper, quicker ways of transacting, right, among each other. Uh, yes, they are. And um, the key to that, uh, I agree with uh, Dan Dan, uh, this, this is a situation where if China uh, relaxes, um, its currency controls and opens up its uh, account, um, you're going to see major changes. The question is, is that going to happen? And if it does, when? Uh, that is the key to um, what I would see as a dominance, a quick dominance by uh, China, simply because of the trade relationship. Uh, take it. The other factor in here is an electronic yuan. Uh, the idea of, of moving things so quickly at so little cost uh, versus the current banking system, which mm. relies on all sorts of guarantees, letters of credit, and things like this. Very, uh, you know, for smaller companies, it's it's a real hassle. It also costs and add, adds quite a bit to the transaction. With an e-currency and uh, convertibility, 
that would uh, disappear. You'd see, you know, akin to, you know, the difference between uh, uh, credit card rates in, in the West can be between uh, two and three uh, percent versus, you know, uh, what you get in China with WeChat and things like that, where it's uh, minuscule 0.02 percent. Um, if that happens, you know, these businesses are going to make the decision. This is not about countries. This is about uh, somebody sitting there and says, well, I can pay, you know, uh, money, uh, additional money to do it in this in this way, or I can pay less in that way. Um, and if I don't take uh, the more uh, efficient uh, process, uh, my competitors will and I'll be pushed out of business. So uh, once the momentum starts, uh, you, you see it rapidly changing. And you saw that with the pound sterling and the U.S. dollar within seven years uh, uh, the U.S. went from, you know, uh, being an also-run currency to being the dominant uh, currency, and uh, the British pound has faded ever since. Mm. So then now, actually, more and more economies are taking actions to seek the trade settlement in the non-U.S. dollar currencies, and Malaysia proposed a Asian monetary fund. So how do you see it? Are we seeing a de-dollarization trend, or is that, you know, along the same trend that we are talking about? Uh, it does look like uh, the trend has been going on for a while, and now it's accelerating. Um, a alternative global trade settlement system uh, looks like it is moving from just a conceptual idea to reality. Uh, more countries have been developing its own independent payment system to circumvent the financial payment and settlement system dominated by the U.S., and it's not just Asia. Asia has sort of come in the later stage. Mm. But as early as in 2019, Germany, France, and UK had already established a EU trade settlement trying to uh, make payment possible to Iran. And for India and several other countries, this was already an idea in the making. Um, people do not want to abandon dollar as an international settlement currency because so far it had worked well. But as we can see, it is getting more risky and less reliable in the future, given where the U.S. stands in international trade and its attitudes towards countries that do not follow its lead. Mm-hmm. So it's only natural for the Asia, Asian countries to step up. So Aina, so what's your comment? Well, I, I think we have to uh, differentiate uh, this idea of, of currency multipolarity with um you know, what was proposed by the Malaysian PM. He's concerned about uh, contagion if there is, in fact, uh, issues. Remember, the Asian financial crisis uh, hit them all hard. Everybody remembers it. Uh, They don't want a repeat of that. So they want to cut down their exposure to whatever happens in the U.S. or in Europe. And the best way to do that is to have the countries, which are growing at a nice, fast clip uh, compared to the rest of the world, that's being Asia, uh, to have you know a facility that allows them to weather any kind of ups and downs that come because of the actions in other parts of the world. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.